Hello and welcome to Off the Page, the podcast from International Literature Festival Dublin. For our final episode of 2016, we're revisiting an event from this year's festival featuring American author Lionel Shriver. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Smock Alley Theatre. Uh, my name's Martin Colthorpe. I'm the Programme Director of the International Literature Festival Dublin. And welcome to this highly anticipated event with a tremendous writer who we're thrilled to be hosting at the festival this evening. I'm talking, of course, about Lionel Shriver, who is here uh, to read from and discuss her latest novel, The Mandibles, A Family 2029-2047, to which has just been published. I'm also delighted to be welcoming our chair this evening, Cathy Rensenbrink. Cathy is a contributing editor at The Bookseller and up until March of this year was project director of the charity Quick Reads. Cathy's next book is due in March 2017. Tonight's event will feature a reading from Lionel. She'll be in conversation with Cathy and then towards the end of the event they'll invite questions from you. And um, thank you to Dublin City Council, the Arts Council of Ireland who um, generously sponsor this festival. But now, most importantly... Please join me in welcoming, firstly, our chair, Cathy Rensenbrink, and Lionel Shriver. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here in this really beautiful building to discuss this really brilliant book. Um, As Martin said, I'll be asking you for questions later on, so I'm already giving you sort of a bit of a beady-eyed stare to make sure that you look like you're going to be ready with hands to be asking good questions, Um, by which I don't mean that in a judgmental way, I just mean asking questions (laughs) and having curiosity. I won't be uh, judging the quality of the questions. I'm sure they'll be brilliant. Um, Lionel, we first meet the Mandible family in 2029. What made you want to set a book in the future? Um, rather idly, uh, before beginning this project, I sat down with a notepad to figure out how late into this century I was likely to live. And uh, I supposed that, uh, let's say, I would live as long as my paternal grandfather, uh, who, who lived till 96. Do you realize that I could still be here in 2053? (laughs) I was absolutely horrified. (laughs) So I thought it was worth looking at what was so frightening about that prospect. And I realized that an awful lot of my concerns about our future coalesce around mid-century. Everything I've read suggests that uh, most of all human population is likely to peak at about 2050 um, and the UN has started to revise that estimate upwards for many years it was kept going down and now it's going back up again Uh, so we could easily have 10.2 billion people which is almost half again as many as we have now Uh, we're likely to run out of fresh water by the time we cross about 9 billion, and that's supposing that water is equally distributed, which it isn't. Uh, and, and of course, we hear all this uh, dire warnings about climate change and uh, desertification and deforestation and you name it. And then on top of that is the, this new concern 
which is uh, as of 2008, we realize that not only are we living on a fragile planet, but we, we live in a fragile economy. And like a lot of people, I think, I became more interested in economic matters. Mm -hmm. uh, having gone through, a, as you have, uh, v very close to an international economic collapse. So the mandibles is, is looking at what didn't happen in 2008. Now, I, w I will admit that it's, it's, it's limited to the United States, and one of the less credible aspects of my plot, because I didn't want to take on international uh, collapse, is that uh, the United States goes down the tubes and it doesn't take everyone else with them. <laughs> <laughs> um, were you always attracted to that? the economic impact, because I was thinking about how there are obviously no shortage of novels that paint a bleak view of the future, but in most cases there's a meteorite that, you know, it's, a, it's often a different cause. Do you think you, was it always going to be economic in your mind? Yes, because, I mean, the, the uh, near future dystopia uh, is a, it's a genre, and I've read a lot of the genre. In fact, I... I was a real science fiction fan uh, when I was a teenager. I went through about five years when I refused to read anything else. So I have that background, but what that also means is that I have respect for what's already been achieved in that form, and I, w I needed to come up with an approach that both played to my own interests uh, and broke some new ground. And you, you are not going to find a lot of economic dystopias out there. It's usually, as you say, mm -hmm. you know, yes, an asteroid, or there have been any number of uh, climate change, uh, sea level rise books. Uh, it's funny, Jane Smiley uh, objected in, a, in an otherwise very nice review in The Guardian just a couple of days ago that uh, that I didn't take on climate change. And it was a literary decision. I just feel that, that that has been done, and it's not what I'm going to be especially good at doing better. So this was, a, this was an area that, had intrigued, that intrigued me. Uh, it was relatively uncharted, and it was also, most importantly, a story that was possible to tell Historically, in the background, you know, what, what happens, the, um, most of all, the United States defaults on its national debt, which means nobody will lend the United States any money anymore, and inflation takes off because they print money to cover government bills. So I, I knew, you know, I could put that together, but economics is not just something for professors. It, it, it's, it's not just in the business section. It affects all of us. You sure found that out. <laughs> so it was possible to tell the story from a very personal perspective. And I liked the idea of just looking at how the, these events affect one family of several generations. Uh, and there, the, that family is in... The, each, the members are in very different circumstances when they begin. What they have in common, however, is that um, the family patriarch, who, who at the beginning of the book is 97 years old, has a fortune that he inherited 
but because he refuses to die, like a good grandparent, um, the, the money is stuck. So you've got all these people waiting to come into their inheritance, and yet the longer wived the patriarch is, the more they have to wait. And what happens very early on in the book is, is money go bluey. So you've got people who were expecting to come into some money, unearned admittedly, but had that expectation and, and suddenly it's, it's vanished. And because the disaster is cumulative and gradual, mm -hmm. and this is one of the things I enjoyed right from the beginning of the novel, I did think this is, this is different. This is actually what I always want from dystopia in a way mm. because I spend quite a lot of the time thinking how long will it be in the future before I find it insane that this was what I was worrying about now? Right. And there's this really delicious tension in the opening bits I know of that, the book. I, I know that feeling exactly. <laughs> yeah. There's this really delicious tension because some of the characters can kind of see a bleak future. Some of them don't want to. Some of them want to blame, you know, think that you only think the end of the world is coming if you yourself are personally unhappy. And so we see this sort of commonplace nature of impending doom it was I mean I wanted to contribute two things to this genre uh, one of them was the economics but the other was the scale I mean it, I tried very hard to control the scale of events both historically and personally and to keep the plot I, I try to keep the plot under the control so you know I, I hope it doesn't disappoint you but there are no you know zombies sloughing <laughs> down the street um, and it's not roving gangs of murderous rapists. Uh, it's, it's civilization breaking down by increments. And, you know, because it, there is an obligation, there's a point in the novel where that, de that deterioration starts speeding up. But I tried to keep it really gradual at the beginning, and the intention is to make it as real as possible. So it's set in the future, but not that much has changed. Little things. I mean, um, I'm, not, I'm not interested in uh, innovating on the technological level. So quite deliberately, most of the things that have changed are already in the pipeline. You know? So you're not going to be wowed by the fact that there are driverless electric cars. So, and I mean that's like, that's meant to be boring because that's not what we're looking at. Um, I, I invented one little gizmo of, because I thought that was an obligation, which is called a flex. And I guess it has to do with the fact that I find smartphones irritating for having to, having to charge them all the phone, all the time. They're too stiff, so it's, it's still not really comfortable to keep them in your pocket. And they break. So... My new technology is called a flex, and it's uh, made of a very, very thin material that it, you, you can stiffen it into any size screen you want, the little smartphone or as big as a desktop uh, computer. But you can wad it up and put it in your pocket like a tissue. In, in fact, the early, before the late, later generations started using distinctively bright colors, says the book, people were throwing them away because they mistook it for a Kleenex. <laughs> so that's my one little innovation. <laughs>
But otherwise, that's not, that's not the focus of the book. So it's supposed to be, there are a few things that have changed, but it should be a very recognizable future. It should be a, a future in which you can easily see yourself sliding in. I want you to see this as possibly happening to you. Would you like to read us a little bit? Sure. That would be great. I thought I'd um, read a, a very short section, in case you're worried. <laughs> Most audiences hate readings. It's near the beginning of the book. Uh, it's after uh, the president has announced that um, the U.S. is not going to repay its national debt. But at the same time, because uh, he knows this is going to get the U.S. into trouble, he... Uh, the president calls in all gold in private hands. Now, I actually had the Financial Times reviewer criticize me uh, for doing that because it seemed implausible. Do you realize that Franklin Delano Roosevelt did exactly the same thing in 1932? Before I started doing the research for this book, I had no idea. I have to say I was truly shocked. The only difference between my gold recall and FDR's is that FDR let you keep your jewelry, and I don't. <laughs> um, this is uh, early enough in the book that people are still having dinner parties, of all things, and uh, Lowell... Uh, is uh, the father of the household and he is an economics professor at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He has three children. Savannah, the oldest, is 17. And then his two younger children, uh, both sons, Goog, 15, and Bing, 10. Yes, they are named after search engines. <laughs> So before the guests before the guests come over, he goes upstairs to check on his children. Lowell rapped on Savannah's door, then poked his head in. You consider joining the grown-ups tonight? Nah. His 17-year-old was sprawled on the bed, hunt and pecking on her flex. I want to finish this application. I can ask Mojo for an omelet. Now, Mojo... Again, one of these not really my inventions. Um, it's a household management system, which has recently, in this household, gone a bit bonkers. It keeps ordering milk over and over again until they're drowning in it. I want to finish this application. I can ask Mojo for an omelet. Better make it yourself. Mom, mom's turned Mojo off for the night. She didn't want it to bury the guests in the backyard or something. There's a new Netflix series about that, you know. About a murderous mojo run amok. Oldest sci-fi plot in the book. Goes back to 2001, A Space Odyssey. Savannah frowned. Why would science fiction be set in the past? Because when the novel was written, 2001 was in the future. Like 1984 which seemed far away when Orwell wrote it. But then the real 1984 came and went. And it was, wasn't as nearly as horrible or as alien or sad as he predicted. Plots set in the future are about what people fear in the present. 
They're not about future at all. The future is just the ultimate monster in the closet, the great unknown. The truth is, throughout history, things just keep getting better. On average, the world's population has a higher and higher standard of living. Our species gets steadily less violent. violent. But writers and filmmakers keep predicting that everything's going to fall apart. It's almost funny. So don't you worry. Your future's looking sunny, and it, it'll only get sunnier. She looked at him with curiosity. I wasn't worried. Well, that makes you a colossal idiot. Popped <laughs> into his head before he could stop the thought. So what's the school? RISD, I can draw. But they want you more than anything to be able to talk about drawing. I'm not sure I'm so good at that. Visual art stopped being about making anything a long time ago. It's all about talking. The talking is what you make. Doesn't visual art have to be something you see? I guess text is something you see. Not anymore, she said. Nobody at my school reads anything. They use earbuds and get read to. Sounds slow, Lowell said glumly. It's easy. It's relaxing. They do know how to read. She shrugged with a smile. Not all of them. You have to be able to read even to work for the post office. Not really, she said with an air of dreamy mischief. Hand scanners can read aloud addresses, too. Careless, huh? Careless is cool in the future. <laughs> Lowell rolled his eyes. Good luck with the application. When he stopped by Goog's room, Bing was on the bed, too. They both clammed up when their father made an appearance. You boys planning to stay upstairs tonight? Because you can come down and join us if you want. Though I'm not sure Mom has quite enough fish. Oh, yuck, they said in unison. They didn't realize it. But given the outlandish prices and poor availability of anything but the farmed varieties, which tasted like pond scum, these boys had been trained to hate fish. Who's coming? Goog asked. Mom's friend, Belle Duval, you remember, the cancer doctor. Oncologist, Goog corrected scornfully. The oncologist. God forbid you should insult Goog's vocabulary. Also, my colleague, Ryan Beersdorfer. Goog squinted. The guy who did that 10-part documentary on inequality. What made Ryan's name was a book, believe it or not. One of the last big bestsellers. It predicted that American low-skilled wages would soon be so abysmal that the Chinese will outsource their jobs to us. Lowell tried to discipline the derision from his voice. One of the things that makes an economist popular with regular people is a proclivity for hyperbole. Which means? A tendency to exaggerate. Gook said promptly. But how could you get more hyperbolic than what's really happened? Olivia Andrews has taken a leave of absence from school because her father shot himself in their kitchen. 
I don't think you guys have been exaggerating enough. Sounds like you two should come downstairs then. Join the conversation. I don't want to listen to a bunch of economy stuff, Bing said. Then maybe you were born into the wrong family. Yeah, probably was. He turned to the door, to the door when Goog piped up. Dad, can I ask you a question? Sure, Lowell said. A friend of mine at Goog school, he said his mother had a bar of gold she bought a while ago in Dubai, where I guess you could buy it like, you know, shampoo, without a paper trail. His mom had to explain to him about Dubai because he walked outside when she was digging a hole for the bar in the backyard. Isn't that against the law? Right now, yes. But your friend is knucklehead. He shouldn't have told you that. He needs to keep his pie holes shut. Well, he made me swear not to tell anybody. So why are you telling me? Google looked hurt. He'd be the only teenager in D.C. upbraided for sharing secrets with a parent. Because I wonder what to do. Whether I should report it to somebody. Like the police. Yeah, that's what they told us to do in assembly. That, Lowell said, is sinister. And the answer is no, you do not want to report that goal to the police or even to a teacher. Keep the lid on it. Your friend's mother could be fined and even thrown in jail. But what about the law? I don't care. There have been places and times where everybody rats on everybody else and nobody trusts anybody. They were bad places and bad times. This is the United States, and we don't operate that way, got it? If I had some gold I wasn't handing over to the feds, would you turn me in? Are you hiding any? Given this discussion, I wouldn't tell you if I were. <laughs> but if people who surrender their gold get a crap price from the treasury, like you said, and then the recalcitrant, Goog gave in the recent addition to his vocabulary an emphatic flourish, not only get away with hiding their gold, but can get a better price for it on the black market or overseas. Doesn't that mean that the people who follow the rules get punished? As your father, I shouldn't be letting you in on this rather ugly fact of life. But people who follow the rules are almost always punished. On that mournful note, Lowell headed downstairs where the guests had arrived. Lowell's a great character. There's a bit later on where I think Lowell's wife says to him, um, she says, are you worried about what's happening or are you more worried about being proved wrong? Um, because he... Yes. He's a classical Keynesian economist and um, has, been, has been saying for some time now that, that you can keep sustaining a huge uh, sovereign debt, as most countries are now. And, and that it's not a problem, and that, that, uh, that it's 
thoroughly sustainable. And if it weren't sustainable, then it wouldn't be sustained, ipso facto. Um, but yes, and that's, that's always interesting to me um, in fields where people have a vested interest in a position. And they get angry when they're proved wrong and it, you sometimes think that they care more about being right or wrong than about what happens. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when, um, I mean, I, I researched this in a, in, a, in a different field when I was uh, researching my um, fourth book, Game Control, which, in which there were, there were characters, some, some of whom believed that uh, Afri Africa was going to overpopulate itself into oblivion, and then there was a whole other set that uh, believed that the continent was about to depopulate from the AIDS epi epidemic. And honestly, they were both rooting for their problem to be worse. It was fascinating. Mm -hmm. So there was a level on which those epidemiologists wanted AIDS to just massacre everyone because then they'd be right. You know, their problem won. And I, I, I love that stuff. <laughs> Why, um, I think it's great that it is a family because of the connections between them. Was it always going to be a family? Could yeah. Could it ever have been a group of friends? Yeah. Um, I mean, in some ways, it's a, it's a cross between that kind of family saga book and, and this you know, economic dystopia. It's, it's, it's a crossing of two genres. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I, I think that's effective. And the way the f different generations of the family have made their money is mm. very interesting, isn't it? So the family wealth comes initially from... Well, you know, there's only one person who's truly wealthy, mm -hmm. and that's the 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 ver very old man uh, his son has lived quite modestly and is almost 70 years old and you know well what's he going to spend it on when he finally gets it uh, uh, an especially posh assisted living facility i mean it's and you know this is happening in real life a lot that people this with this extended life expectancy that Families that do have a fortune and people in it, you know, the younger members are, are ho waiting for life to begin when they get their hands on the money. And, you know, even the generation that is, is first, to, first in line to inherit starts becoming quite el elderly. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of tragic. And then the next generation down, I was very interested in the... The, basically the millennial generation. Uh, one of the most sympathetic people in the book, whose name is Florence, graduated from university in 2008, which was absolutely the worst time to uh, get out uh, uh, with a degree. And that, that generation was scarred for life. And she's been going from menial job to menial job and finally worked her way up to working at a homeless shelter. Uh, so she's really living quite hand to mouth. I should so, say though that it, it was important for there to be money somewhere in the family for this, the plot of this book to work because you have to have something in order to lose it. And mm -hmm. I, I wanted you to go through the experience of watching a large amount of money vanish because what happens when a when inflation really takes off, uh, 
is it is it completely decimates the wealth of a country, and that's that's on an individual level, mm-hmm. and so I wanted you to experience that. So it's not that I'm I I have to write about posh rich people or something, but you had to have money in this book to make it go away. Mm-hmm. People talk about money in various ways. Someone says, I think it's low that money is emotional. Um, other people want it for ease and liberation or to feel safe. Mm. Mm. And so even before the money disappears, people have their view of what they... Or, or because they can't get at it, they have an illusion of what the money is going to provide for them. Well, I'm fascinated with money or people and money and their relationship to it and and how it influences their relationship with each other. Um, It's a fascinating quantity because it's not actually worth anything, which is hard to get your head around. But unless it's converted into something else, it's nothing. It's a proxy uh, material. It, 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 It... And... Therefore, it tends to attract anything you want. It it tends to um, emblemize anything you want. And people want very different things. So maybe you want power. Maybe you want attention or beauty or importance or um, stuff. Stuff's kind of low down the list, interestingly. But it's it's so slippery. It's so unclear what it is. And and you... The passage you're remembering about safety, it's mm-hmm. one of my favorite passages, mm-hmm. actually. Because what happens is through your life, and I've experienced this, what you want changes, and therefore what money is good for changes. And what I've noticed is that as I get older, I'm less likely to want to put together a nest egg to buy experience, for example, which is what, it, healthfully, uh, a lot of younger people want to buy. They want to travel. They, um, you know, get out in the world and meet new people and 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 have new exciting adventures. But increasingly, what I want money for, and I'm I'm ashamed to admit it, but this, it, there's something almost um, genetically inevitable about it. I want money to be safe, right? And of course, if I had more family because I didn't have any kids and that so I don't have that many people to protect but uh, that safety would naturally of course extend to the people I care about I mean I would I want to be safe I want the people I love to be safe but it's a very different uh, kind of desire and the irony being as this book illustrates that there is no such thing as financial safety we are too dependent on a very complex economic system which includes our very currency. And currencies can turn to nothing overnight. It's so anxiety-provoking that we don't think about it. Uh, but it is, it is scary how dependent we are on extremely complex systems working properly. And as we saw in 2008... There are a lot of people out there doing a big fiddle, and it's on a massive scale. And governments themselves are doing a big fiddle. 
because they're borrowing far more money than they will ever pay back. It's impossible. I mean, uh, I haven't been keeping up with Irish economics as much as I ought to have, but I can at least testify that George Osborne and his many successors, well, they're never going to pay that money back. They can't even eliminate the deficit, which means that the national debt just keeps getting bigger. Same thing's happening in, in my country. We are more indebted than we've ever been before, and that is on, on a sovereign, corporate, and individual level. At some point, you've got to, to admit that when money, there's so much debt that no one is ever going to pay it back, then that money doesn't exist. It is fake money. And it means that the entire world economy is based on fake money. And what's upsetting about that is that I think we all keep, um, we, have, we put different moral weights on money depending on how it was earned. And the thing is that it's one thing to, to watch you know, these financiers who are making millions and millions of pounds or dollars every year that, uh, okay, fine, if their fortunes go away, it's not that upsetting. But we're also talking about pension funds, you know, people who, who worked very, very hard to set something aside for a rainy day. And I'm worried about all of you. I really am. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is that if the, if the, if the pension, if, the, if the, the people who have huge amounts of money, for whom money is just a game, if they play the game wrong and it all falls apart, we don't feel sorry for them, but it's, it's because their money seems cheap, is what my point. And our money that we work really hard for seems hard-earned and therefore more real. But if the system falls apart, you don't distinguish between the good money and the cheap money. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about setbacks? There's one of my favorite bits is about which I think ties into the money thing, and, and good money and bad money, is um, Florence says, everyone adapts effortlessly to coming up in the world, and mm. improved circumstances always seem well-deserved. <laughs> but going in the opposite direction feels unnatural and unjust. Um, I've never met anyone whose life has taken a sudden turn for the worse who thought a reversal of fortune was just what they had coming to them. <laughs> Setbacks never bring out the best in people. <laughs> And that, again, so much of that is running through the novel, isn't it? We're watching people cope with this setback situation. And yes, it's making people deal with something that, they, that I'm, I'm ob observing is it, that people are just, in general, not very good at. Mm. You know, your, your fortune's sh re revving into reverse. It feels wrong. And it's also a very, um, it's a very Western mindset that we improve through our life, we make more money, we become more successful. Of course, it's not actually the way it, it happens all the time, mm -hmm. but that's the cliche. That's, you're supposed to, maybe you start out modestly, but you keep, you know, you keep climbing up the ladder, you keep getting a bigger house, everything keeps getting better. And it's a real shock when it goes the opposite direction. And it makes you pissy and petulant. <laughs> 
Yes, it's like you, the idea that I've created a situation that's not going to bring out the best in people, is it? Well, actually, that's not particularly true because there are eventually. The I mean, there are. It, that's a lot of what the the novel is about: is how different characters deal with this. And then there's one character in particular, um, who I created to be pissy and petulant, which wasn't very nice on my part. But I. Um, she she kind of bootstrapped herself into being a better person. Part of it was that she was she's very competitive with her sister who's acting like the household saint and she's she decides she's going to be even more virtuous than you know Florence as she says Florence as in Nightingale. <laughs> <laughs> and she actually stops complaining and works very hard and does what she can to to um, you know find food and whatever to, to find toilet paper that's one a running theme in the whole book <laughs> uh, and she her, it has an improving effect on her character mm -hmm. can we talk about books writing mm -hmm. words news because um, again that's a big theme in the book one that I enjoyed a lot and I also sort of rather felt and actually, in general, I thought you were having fun with this novel because it, it may sound in some ways bleak for those of you who haven't read it. And I mean, it, we are dealing with some bleak stuff, but it's also hilarious and a great laugh. And I felt you were having a lot of fun with the books and the writing strand. And mm -hmm. there's a, uh, and a writer in here. Can you just talk to us a bit about putting a writer into a novel? Sure. Um, there's, a, there's a character in the book who shows up about a quarter of the way through and uh, she uh, was born in 1957, in May. Um, she's been living in Paris for decades and finally comes back to the United States. She was a writer. She had one book that did really well. <laughs> you starting to get it? <laughs> uh, and now refuses to keep writing because you can't make a you can't make a living as a, um, a as a professional novelist any longer. She won't work, write for nothing. And her name is Enola Mandible, but she goes by the nickname of Nolly. And just to gild the lily, <laughs> Nolly is an, an anagram of Lionel. And she's an exercise fanatic, like a lot of people in her baby boomer generation. And the whole idea was to insert her as a as a, a, a an object of derision, and e even I would have to say authorial derision. So I I wanted to take the Mickey out of myself. A, part of it was just for fun, and and also it was also it, it was to acknowledge that because one of the things this book is looking at is demographics and the fact that my generation is going to be a terrible burn, burden on the uh, previous, uh, on the upcoming generations. Just uh, uh, we're living too long and our health care costs are too high and it's going to make you young people's tax rates astronomical. Uh, so I wanted to personalize it and admit that I am part of the problem. <laughs> uh, all the titles of her books 
are actually the real um, working titles of my own books, and they're ghastly. <laughs> so I finally come clean. People have asked me this before, and I refuse to admit it in public, but I, I've now come out and have to admit that the original working title of We Need to Talk About Kevin was Cradle to Grave. <laughs> and if I had kept that title, I would not be here with you today. <laughs> but all the other ones, they're just as bad. <laughs> seems almost dangerously sycophantic now, but I love Nolly so much. She's, she, and, the, and the, she does go on a journey through the novel. I would always want her to be on my side. If something bad was happening in the world, I, she would be the person I would hope would like pop up next to me at the end of the world stall, because, well, you'd have a laugh anyway, and probably quite resourceful, I think. Yes, well, Nolly was, uh, Molly is, um belligerent, obnoxious, opinionated, and tactless. But, and, and uh, one of the characters observes that uh, the, the Nolly's brother uh, considered Nolly ho hopelessly selfish. There's a rivalry between the two. But, uh, this character says, well, there's a certain kind of selfish that you want on your side. <laughs> and that is true. Mm -hmm. um, the funny thing about writing Nolly is that I originally wrote her to poke fun of myself, but I kind of got fond of her after a while. <laughs> so I, I think that may be indicative of a certain psychic health. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Can we talk about sex in the future? Again, there's lots of interesting mm. stuff going on with, um, with sex. Tell us about what a stimulation consultant does for a living. <laughs> <laughs> um, Savannah, whom you meet in the reading that I just did, uh, ends up using what resources she has to hand and becomes a prostitute. It's what, it's what she's got to sell. And uh, later, the, the book takes a leap two-thirds of the way through, and you go from um, 2032 to 2047. And by 2047, prostitution has become legal in the United States because just about anything is legal in the United States as long as you can tax it. So she's actually got a community college degree in, in, uh, for, for becoming a stimulation consultant. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> There's also a bit about sex in the future, which is that people are slightly less inclined to do it with each other and more inclined to just sort themselves out. Which I thought seems. They're too tired. Yeah. I'm telling you, this is very sympathetic with young people. But uh, 
the, the young people in the in the second section uh, have uh, always have more than one job. They even at very very low wages they are pay, they pay 77 percent of their wages in taxes. And uh, yeah, they're too tired to have sex. Nobody's having children because they can't really afford them. And um, yeah, we, we've entered. We've almost entered the post-sex world. Little mournful sighs from the audience, <laughs> which is very sweet. Um, there's lots of. You said you haven't invented a lot of futuristic gizmos, but there's lots of fun with language. Mm. And um, again, in the later part, there's a lot about the language of death because death has been delayed. So I wonder, would you talk to us about shrivs, blithers, and morts? <laughs> well, there's a huge cohort of old people in 2047, as there will indeed be a huge co cohort of, of old people, many of them the so-called old-old. Um, and so one of the main things there is to do for work is to work at a, a nursing home. And then um, in a another total self-indulgence and, and internal illusion on my part, in 2047, rather than have school shootings, you have nursing home shootings. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I told you, I've, look, this book is fun. <laughs> <laughs> And the people who work at the nursing home divide the residents into um, shrivs, walking shrivs. Shrivs is a generic term for old people, which, yes, it does have a certain relationship to my name. And the walking shrivs are the people who can still make it to the loo. So they're the, they're the, the, the top of the totem pole. <laughs> and then there are the blithers. They're demented out of their minds. <laughs> and the morts are in a permanent vegetative state. So, yes. I mean, what, one of the things I really enjoy doing is inventing language. But I, there's, there's a set of slang in the first part, and then there's a slightly different set of slang in the second part. And it's not, um, I think you'll find it's, it's sprinkled through the text uh, in a way that it's not like, oh, you can't understand what people are saying. I try not to overdo mm -hmm. it. And I tried to make it easy for you to understand. Um, you know, if you call someone an utter T-bill in 2047, you know it's an insult. Um, or you're, you're talking treasury, kid. Well, you can, can tell from the context that that means bullshit. Um, so, but inventing these words was fun and also surprisingly hard especially if you want to come up with a word for drunk or crap, you know, something that's rubbish. Uh, uh, in the, the beginning, it's something that's rubbish is roach bar because uh, Hershey's Chocolate put out an insect-based snack that was became notorious. So everything that was crap was roach bar. And then later, in 2047, something that's rubbish is splug. But you know, coming up with a word like that is surprisingly difficult. If you go to, you know, one of these urban dictionaries on the web, 
You know how many of these words have already been invented? I can't, I would go through like hundreds of them and they all, someone had already come up with it. It was so annoying. Could you talk to us about the, so the structure is in two distinct time frames and I just wondered why you made that decision rather than one continuous thing or? Well, you know, sometimes you do something just because you can. And <laughs> skipping that many years, just, it's like being able to fly in fictional terms. Mm. And I, I find it strangely exhilarating. I, I, like, I like being able to skip. And uh, in that particular instance, I, I spare the reader a couple of, of parts of the story that you can fill in for yourself. And it's far, it also saved vast numbers of pages. <laughs> so I spared my publishers all that paper, and I spared you a whole lot of time. <laughs> so it makes it a much, much thinner book, and I think, a, a, you know, easier to get through. Uh, there's, a, there's a section that, you, uh, that I could have done the whole apocalyptic road trip read that so many times and I had thought at first that I would write it and then I thought I just can't bear this and then I realized oh I see your reader can't bear it either so let's spare each other and skip it and you can fill it in for yourself and sometimes that's that's refreshing it's like thank you thank you let's just go somewhere that I, I can't anticipate let's, let, let's skip to the part that I, I don't I, I wouldn't be able to write for you so let's start there. And so I, f I found that quite refreshing. And then you find out along the way what happened to a couple characters who are mysteriously missing. Uh, but, you know, that's one of the things that fiction can do that uh, it's, a, it's a funny kind of athleticism of being able to leap to a new point. And I think that at first you resist. It's like, hmm, this feels strange. What ha where, where, are the people, where are the people I got familiar with? But you get comfortable soon enough and it's refreshing to be somewhere else. Yes, because we share a landscape, don't we? We share all this cultural knowledge and so if we know, yes, if we, if we, we the reader, imagine all that happening so we don't need to read it again because we've read it lots of times before. It's very interesting. I hadn't thought of it that quite, quite that way around. One of the things <coughs> that... Um, Hopefully normal service will resume. <laughs> um, one of the things I liked about the leap is that my, the character who I was really rooting for all the time, we take the leap with him and we start with him again. And was that intentional to steady us over that jump or is that just a, a, a well, random use, thing that I was nice for me? A, a technique that I hadn't ever done before uh, what I would call the stealth protagonist. It's somebody, the 13-year-old, kind of, it seems like one of several characters at the beginning of the book, and little by little, and he's the most char definitely the most charming character in the book, and he's the smartest, but little by little he emerges as your main character. But you don't really know that until well into the book, and then suddenly in 2047, 
he takes over. It's completely from his point of view. And I think that's one of the things that makes making that, that leap, that temporal leap, leap uh, more palatable because you have the company of the character with whom you have formed the biggest bond. And so it's like, oh, well, at least as long as it's through Willing's eyes that we have Willing's company, I think I can stick this because like, this feels familiar and I'm interested in his mind and I'm interested what he's at like now that he's 30 and he's, he still feels comfortingly like the same sensibility. So I, I really enjoyed that general, that gradual emergence mm-hmm. of, of taking over because it, it has a coming of age quality to it. You know, little kid, nobody's paying attention to him but little kids grow up. And he's often very... There's a whole people like us thing going on, isn't there, through the novel, in terms of what, what are people like us, who we, think are, who we think are like us, who we think we are, and then how circumstances might change us. And it's often Willing who sees that the wind has changed, that they have to... They have to, to for this family to survive, they're going to have to change to be a different type of family. Yes, He's the adaptable one. Mm. And one of the things that happens when things go pear-shaped historically is that a certain kind of person, like most people, refuse to admit that it's happening and cling to their previous ways of doing things. I mean, I'm sure it's it's one of the reasons that um, there were a certain number of Jews that did not make it out of Germany uh, when they still had time. They didn't want it to be happening. Mm. Right? It's like, this can't be happening and things will go back to normal and we just have to get through this. And they didn't realize how much peril they were in while they, and, and therefore didn't, didn't take advantage of that brief window. And I think that's a, that's, a very common, uh, that's a very common problem of people clinging to the way things have been. Surely they can't change that much and we just have to weather this. And the, it's very difficult to tell the difference between uh, a, just a rough patch and a truly tectonic shift in how one survives in the world. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very good note to move to audience questions. You're all looking so intelligent and articulate and eager and lovely and friendly. Am I going to have a hand? Somewhere, yes, lovely. Two at the same time. I'm going to come to Stripey Lady first, and then I'm going to come to you down there. So could we get the microphone over here? Hi, how are you? Can you hear me? Yes. Um, as an author, does it help to have a sense of humour? You know, whether it's um, d- you know negotiating a publishing deal or uh, breaking tension in a novel or come to evenings like this? I th- I think. As a human being, it helps to have a sense of humor. (laughs) I can't get through the day without cracking a joke, and I sure uh, appreciate it when you do your part, too. Um, It's probably our most evolved coping mechanism. And... I don't think it's an obligation for every novel to be funny, and some of them aren't. But I know that for me, it's compulsive. So, because I, 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 I need to keep myself entertained. And I like the mixing of real drama and humor. I, 
you know, obviously you have to keep the humor under control. Um, it can't go, you, you can't let your book fall in, into farce if you are trying to accomplish something dramatically and, and move people and, and get people to care about your characters. They can't just crack wise all the time. So it's a balanced thing. But I also find that, that if you're dealing with some pretty heavy material, the best possible you can, thing you can do for your reader and for y y you as the author uh, is, to, is to crack a joke. You know, let it, lets, it leavens it, it releases tension, and it creates contrast, which is very useful. You know, and, and I find, I've never had a reader complain your book was too funny. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a very useful tool. And down here, can we get the microphone down to this lady? How much of the plot of your book do you know before you start? Most of it. I don't know the fine details, but I know the, the general arc. I've generally, I've, I've, I will often have decided what happens to each character. Um, what I don't know is what it means exactly. So I tend to have a skeletal plot together. It makes me feel safe, just like money. <laughs> <laughs> but it's surprising how little that gives you. And it, it doesn't sort out the, the, the lines, the language. It doesn't give you necessarily all the individual scenes. But it gives me a kind of road map for where, where I'm going. I, I can change my mind. I usually don't change my mind a whole lot. But uh, it gives me a sense of direction. But it's uh, most of all what I'm... What I'm writing to find out is not so much what happens, but what there is to say along the way and what it adds up to. So the events really don't, knowing what the events are, really doesn't solve that much. So it's not as if that, 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 that writing a book when I know what happens is a, a rote just kind of getting it down. There's all to explore. So I... I find it useful to have a pretty firm sense of, of what what the plot is. That's the, way, that's the way I do it, but there are lots of writers who don't. There are writers that tell us Excel spreadsheets. and There are lots of writers yeah. who start on page one and have no idea what happens on page two. Mm. I don't know how they sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get the microphone over there? <coughs> Hi, Leno. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, your books. They're amazing. Thank uh, you. Big Brother, uh, the tennis one. Double fault. Let's, let's talk about Kevin. Yeah. He's had a lot of wine as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, Tonight you're coming across as really playful and, and uh, really uh, colourful. And like I th for me, I think I compare you to a, a modern Thomas Hardy, personally, because I feel your characters... But he was such a drag. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you make your characters... The, you make the characters... 
And me, as a, as a reader, just go through the, the Miller a bit. I really empathise a lot with your, with your characters a lot. And I'd like to understand what your perspective is of, of, the, of the future. Because, you know, you come across very positive tonight, but a lot of the time I find your characters, you know, they're, they're, they're quite challenging. And yet I love them. So I'd like to understand what your vision is. Is it positive or negative of the future? It's probably pretty dark. I mean, that's, that's what I was getting at. At the um, at when we first started talking, when I think about 2053, I'm concerned. I may be wrong, and one of, but one of the things that I address in this novel is the fact that you can't trust you can't trust my pessimism, especially as I get older. I think that that older people are naturally apocalyptic about the future because it is a kind of projection of their own mortality on the rest of the world. There's a, there's a whole passage in this book that addresses that, and I think it's true. And the trouble is that when you do that, you're not aware of doing it. And, and therefore, I, I, I latch on to all these statistics about what life is probably going to be like around 2050, and I can marshal a pretty good case that, you know, you're not going to want to live in that world. And I'm not going to want to live in that world. It scares the pants off me. But I could just be worried about being old and dying. And that that's, that's really what's causing this sense of impending doom and anxiety. And, and therefore, you should really just never listen to old people. <laughs> Not about the future. <laughs> yeah, well. Hi, Lionel. It's true. I've had just as much wine. I wondered, do you suffer often from writer's block? And if so, do you know what brings it on and what you do to, I suppose, dispel it to get your flow back? My primary experience of writer's block is doing too many promotional events like this. <laughs> so I end up producing very little aside from also shamelessly promotional articles, but no fiction, and it takes up a pretty big whack of my time. Uh, and were I to ever suffer more typical writer's block, I wouldn't be surprised if that's, that's what kicked it off getting rusty, right? Uh, fortunately, I have never gone through an extended period of, of not being able to write. I think what would stop me is just not having the idea. The idea is everything. Or not, or, or not like I've va got a vague idea for my next novel, but I don't have the constituent ideas without which I can't actually write it, if you know what I mean. Like, where is it? Where is it taking place? What are the characters? What exactly is at stake? And what happens? Like, the whole book! <laughs> um, so that could, I, I could see that stymieing me. Um, I don't generally have much trouble generating verbiage. I think you can tell that tonight. <laughs> it's a kind of chronic incontinence. <laughs> But I, I'm sympathetic, 
with people who do get paralyzed. And I think um, I think it's it, it's people get paralyzed in writing out of fear, and it, that it's mostly fear of judgment, and perhaps first and foremost fear of your own judgment. Oh no, this sucks. And one of the things that it's really important to do if you are going to write is to give yourself permission to suck. Right? And to relish the fact that with your first draft, nobody nobody sees it. I think this whole thing of sharing your work all the time in the early stages is, is, is really stupid. Give your... Enjoy your privacy. You know, it is... You know, that door on your study is your biggest friend. Just don't let anyone see it and stay in the that fluid place where you can always tell yourself you can fix it later, right? It's one of the great things about working in words, especially in, in, in a time of, um, of the computer. It didn't used to be this way. When earlier in my career, I was working on a typewriter and... Uh, Rewriting was much harder. Now it's effortless. So it's a perfectly fluid medi medium. It's perfectly plastic. It can always be fixed until it comes out like that, which is, is scary. But you just need to relax. Relax with the... the stay in that playful state where there's nothing at stake. The only thing that's at stake if you really want to be a writer, is whether you spend your time writing or not. And that's, that, that's a lot at stake. So all you, the only thing you've got to lose is you, the time that you didn't spend writing. There is nothing to lose to actually put something down. And I'm just writing that advice down. It's just extremely good. <laughs> I will just because this is just I think I think about those things all the time. And I think right, I think it's all about self doubt. And I actually, for me, think oh, I think all of writing is about the management of self doubt. Mm -hmm. Everything to do with uh, rituals and how you do it is just you're trying to be always a couple of steps ahead of your own self doubt. I thought that was all true, but I, I, wrote, I opened this to write that note down there, and I found I've also scribbled in the book. It says, "Make friends with the fear. What is it for?" <laughs> Seems very pertinent. Right, mm. let's have another question. All the way over here, please, to this gentleman. Is anybody else desperately trying to... And then I'm going to come over there to you. Um, I've uh, been working as, a, as an amateur poet for many years, but since I uh, arrived in Dublin, since I moved to Dublin, I've had the opportunity to join a professional writing centre and, you know, advertise my services as an editor and consultant. And so I've been thinking a lot about this relationship between being an amateur and being, being professional mm. in writing, doing something, as it were, purely out of passion and doing something that also, in, you know, allows one to make a living, perhaps. And obviously, um, you know, we're here tonight to see you, Lionel, as a... As a a very commercially successful writer. I don't know how much money you have, but <laughs> you don't have to tell me. Um, 
I'm and I was thinking, I was thinking here. Uh, so this is a question. This is a this is a, a question about money, but also the relation between money and passion, money and love. Mm. And it's interesting in the culture, isn't it, that love and money are often presented as a kind of antinomy. You know, mm. uh, you know, I wouldn't do that for love nor money. Mm. This kind of thing. Um, and so I was interested in, as you've become a, a successful writer and as you've made your way as a professional writer and made money as a professional writer, writing is something that you do, I assume, with passion but it's also something you sell, and you'll be selling your books here tonight. Um, what impact has earning the money that you've had, uh, that you've earned as a professional writer, had on your creativity, if any, on your passion, if any? Um, and do you think that the money that you earn as a writer um, is adequate to the work that you do? Perhaps you feel underpaid, or perhaps you feel overpaid, or perhaps you feel about you're earning about the right amount. <laughs> oh, one, one never feels one is earning enough. <laughs> That's one of the horrible things about, about earning money or accumulating capital of any kind. It's never enough. That's what I was getting at mm. in that that passage on safety. There is no amount of money that ever seems sufficiently safe. Um, you know, I have to say, I don't think that my financial position has especially affected my content. Or I take that back. I take that back. It has not especially affected my productivity or my passion for what I do or why I do it. I still write a book because I want to write a book, not just because I have a two-book contract. Though, you know, there is that little encouragement. <laughs> I do think it has had a slight effect on the content. If I didn't have any capital, I would be slightly less likely to have written this book. So, I think having capital makes having some capital, let's not get our, our <laughs> a little tiny nest egg. <laughs> I was, actually, I was telling my, my, um, my brother this just the other day. The, there's a certain amount of, uh, of fiscal anxiety that I have experienced my whole life. And, you know, I used to worry about being about very small amounts of money uh, and now the, wor the proportion of worry is exactly the same. It just adapts to a, a different scale, you know? So now I worry about, uh, you recognize that? Yeah. And now, now instead of worrying about not being able to pay my rent, I, wor I worry about worldwide economic collapse. <laughs> But I, 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 um, I did not start this career uh, from uh, out of uh, greed. <laughs> Thank God for that. Mm. Would have been really stupid. So I, I, I am fortunate to be able to make a living at writing. Um, one of the anxieties I express in this novel is is that writers coming up behind me may find that uh, less easy to do.
You know, and, and I think that if we do get to a point from piracy or maybe just oversupply because everyone's putting their work online for basically nothing, uh, that you can't make a living as a writer anymore. There's going to be a first off a, a, a life a, a life available that's w that, that was available to me that that won't be available to younger people, and that's a loss. And it will also mean that there's going to be a certain quality of of writing that's not available because you know having the leisure to really focus on your work and to take it seriously uh, be, because it, it, it is not only uh, avocationally enjoyable but it is the way you earn your crust. I think there's a seriousness that you apply in that instance that is harder to marshal as just an amateur and that has real value and I, I want, I, I hope that, it, that this book is wrong and that it continues to be possible to be a professional writer because, and I mean that as, as a concerned reader as much as a, as a writer. That's lovely. Okay, last question over here from this um, lady. You've probably answered this question, but you write because you're in the moment and your fears are about the future and that probably, the worrying about the future would probably stop your writing, is that it? You mean everything's going to moment, go to hell in a handbasket, so why do anything? Yeah, if, if you're conscious, you know, that, that would stop you doing... If you're actually writing, you're in the moment, but if you're... In, maybe the thinking about the future is the dystopia, and you don't know what the future is. You only know what you are now. That's right. And I just keep myself occupied anguishing. <laughs> I mean, I turned it into... F I had a ball writing this book. I, I haven't had a better time writing any book uh, since we needed to talk about Kevin. Yes, I did. I had a wonderful time writing that book. <laughs> so you were getting all your anxieties out. Yes, and then that's one of the things that the, the dystopic novel is for. And it's not just for the r writer, it's for the reader. They exercise your your worries it's it's a safe place if you will to experiment mentally with all the things that might go wrong but they're not really going wrong and you can put the book down and it's not happening it's like waking up it's it's oh gosh it's all a dream how great so you know it's it's it that's that's what these books are for and they're all, they also perform a, a cautionary purpose because, you know, they're obviously warning about things that could happen if, if you don't stop them from happening. So there's a little bit of a political intent, but mostly it's just a, a, a place to entertain your fears. And what did you say at the back of that? What was that line you wrote down? You said... Um Make friends with fear. What it's is it a way for? of making friends with fear. Yeah. <laughs> it is. And I think, I don't think fear of the future stops you writing. I think it makes you want to write. It's fear of somebody telling you you're doing a shit job of writing about the future might stop you writing. Yeah. But not the, not the real things that ignite the fear or the hope or the love. It's just, it's the, as Lionel says, I think it's the judgment that's the... Yeah. And it's one of the things that's really hard about releasing a book because unless you're going to shut yourself off from them and it's very 
takes a lot of discipline, you have to submit to all this judgment. And some people are going to say that you, you suck. And at a point that it is too late, you know. And, and it hurts, actually. Uh, I was just telling Kathy there's a, what seems like a really great full page review in the New Statesman this week. And I was reading in the airport on the way here. It's like, oh, great. And all the, aren't the, this seems so nice. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and then it takes this horrible turn. <laughs> she didn't like any of my characters. And, um, and, and it smarts. And it's one of the things that you have to really, I mean, you're supposed to be able, you're supposed to grow a thick skin. Well, you, this is just not possible if you spent a long time on something and you care about it and, and you tried to do the best job you could and there are lots of things about it that you love, including the characters. Um, I wanted to hit her. <laughs> you know, you get very defensive to these people. They're like your friends. They're flawed. They're difficult, yes. But they're your friends. And, and I think that... Uh, that if if you take criticism to to heart, whether that's in the mainstream media sphere or in the social media sphere, and most people do take criticism to heart, that's what's probably going to stop you as a writer. And I, I think you you have to shut yourself off from other people and their bloody views. <laughs> and, and 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 but at the same time. Don't have unrealistic expectations of yourself that you're you're supposed to grow this famous thick skin and not care about what other people think of you and not care about your work what pe other people think of your work. It's a very nice idea, but frankly, I think it's impossible. So if someone says something mean about your work, whether it's in the in the Times or 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 on social media or or to your face or, or behind your back, and it hurts your feelings, well, that's perfectly normal. And you shouldn't hold yourself to some kind of ridiculous standard whereby, oh, well, you know, if I'm really professional about this, I can take it. It, 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 it injures very well-known writers when you don't like their work. In fact, I've caught myself on. Uh, I used to give my... I used to have very... Because I do a lot of book reviewing. And I used to generally think, Okay, if it's a first novel, you know, if you don't like it, either don't review it or or soft pedal it. It's don't hurt, don't hurt this person. They're just out in the world. Take it easy. But then I had a completely different attitude toward people who were very well established. You know, someone like uh, Norman Mailer or or um, Ian McEwen or whom I have quite re high regard for, by the way. So. But, you know, they seem like fair game. It's like, surely I can insult them up one side and down the other if I want to. Well, you know what? I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's true. I have a feeling that I could, I could really hurt Ian McEwan's feelings if I lacerated one of his books. Not that he especially cares about what I think. But anybody being lacerating hurts. Mm -hmm. So... I've, I, there are a couple of reviews I published I think I shouldn't have 
you know, that I, sh I should have been a little more considerate. Everyone's feelings can be hurt. On that note, I feel we could carry on. I would very happily carry on this conversation for hours. Probably Lionel doesn't want to because she would like at some point to write another book and not be completely exhausted. <laughs> no, no, all. no. I want a drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we give a massive round of applause?